Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Shikelian and I'm joined by my colleague Stephen Bush. Unfortunately, Alva Ray wasn't feeling well today. Today we're talking about Keir Starmer's first 100 days in office and what his challenges are. And then you ask us, what should the government learn from the Chris Grayling debacle? So Keir Starmer is now over his first 100 days as Labour leader. We spoke about him a bit last week in terms of his PMQ's performances. But Stephen, you've been looking overall at his leadership and you've found his sort of central dilemma, which is he's been doing well, but his party's kind of trailing him. Tell me a bit more about that. The, the sort of fascinating thing about Keir Starmer, I think, is in many ways, right, he is in the exact same political position as David Cameron, actually as David Cameron throughout much of his leadership, right? So like David Cameron, he in, has inherited a party and has lost multiple elections in succession. The third, in the case of David Cameron, so the worst sort of losing run in the Conservative Party's history, epochal defeat in both cases, and a very long, long way back to come, and a government with a majority of you know, about the same size. And like David Cameron, when you look at the polls, and indeed when you talk to the majority of their MPs throughout most of their time as well, most of his, for the 100 days and for most of David Cameron's time as leader, most MPs think, and broadly, Keir Starmer is the best thing they have going for them. As many, and most MPs thought David Cameron was the best thing they had going for them. And intriguingly, of course, in both cases, what they ha- another thing they have in common is they have a, a minority but still large group of MPs to their right in the case of David Cameron, to their left in the case of Keir Starmer, who have an uncertain relationship with them, right? You have people who are in the front bench, you have people who are uh, more opposed to it as a project. With the kind of added complication, I think, that Keir's success, right, is he's introduced himself to the public in a favourable way. But he's done it through kind of sort of performed constructiveness, which does, I think, make it slightly harder for him to kind of do the, but wait a minute, mate, you've done this and you should have done that kind of thing, right? He's kind of like, mm. it's hard to see, like, what what is the kind of, like, within the Keir Starmer brand, what is the way that you kind of maintain that while drawing explicit dividing lines on things that aren't competence-related? Yeah, I thought it was really striking in the piece that you wrote about this, where you were talking about how the next test will be for the shadow cabinet 
members to kind of show that they can be just as competent appearing to the public and and get as good ratings because ultimately Keir Starmer as as leader as a new leader can try this new approach of appearing conciliatory and having this sort of constructive opposition aura but it's much harder to do that as say shadow work and pension secretary or shadow chancellor because you are going to have to constantly be criticizing the policies that your party and your leadership fundamentally disagree with even if that criticism is sometimes oh you know all funding is welcome but this funding goes nowhere near making up for 10 years of cuts which is usually the line which I I always feel I've said this before I always feel really sorry for (laughs) Labour Party politicians when they have to take that line because even though it's true and it is a fair criticism I just think it sounds so unconvincing and often sounds a bit ungrateful And it undermines everything that you're trying to do. If you're trying to sound conciliatory, it sounds like you're whining. If you're trying to sound like you're you're giving a sort of robust opposition to government policy, it doesn't sound robust enough. And I do think that's the big danger. Yes, personality and media performance are crucial. And Keir Starmer has kind of so far shown that he can give a good first impression. But for those shadow cabinet members, you have to engage more with the sort of their day-to-day policy briefs, that I think is going to be much harder. And like you say, those dividing lines, they're going to be much more difficult to establish because of the that the tone of the leadership that he's already sort of created. It's also, and this again is, I guess, exactly where the kind of Cameron parallel again feels very sort of apposite in that if you look at the shadow cabinets David Cameron had, you know, you had kind of faces from the past, but you had a shadow cabinet that wasn't very well known. It didn't have very many big figures in a way than, say, actually, in a way than both a successful Labour shadow cabinet in the shape of Tony Blair's and an unsuccessful shadow cabinet in the shape of Neil Kinnock's in 1992 and indeed actually Ed Miliband's in 2015. Mm. Right, if you think about kind of like casual observers of politics had opinions about Ed Balls, they do not have opinions about Annalise Dodds. They had opinions about... Diane Abbott, often I would say freighted with with racism and sexism, but they had a, they had firm opinions also based on things she'd actually done and said. Whereas this shadow cabinet, yeah, I mean, it is yeah, it's kind of like that description of the Argentine team of um, nineteen eighty six of Maradona and ten others, but it's you know Keir Starmer and twenty two others in the minds of mm. the public. And the, I guess yeah, the other the other way it reminds me of David Cameron is that throughout a lot of the time that I was covering the Cameron leadership. They couldn't understand why they weren't they weren't beating Ed Miliband. Mm. The economy had started to improve. They knew that their guy led the other team's guy on you know perceptions of competence, leadership, good in a crisis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. And yet they weren't beating him according to voting intention. And lots of them thought, oh well, this is because of part of the the party's brand is bad. Labour's brand consistently outpolled the Conservatives. And yet, of course, in 2015, it turned out they were, in fact, beating beating Ed Miliband. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that will happen in 2024, even if that if the voting intention polls haven't moved. But I do find it kind of interesting, right, that we've essentially had two elections, actually, even in 2017. In 2015, 2017 and 2019, broadly, voters were like, I kind of like the idea of a conservative president and a Labour legislature, and they Mm. went, so I think I'm going to vote for the Conservatives. (laughs) Now we again have polls in which people basically say, "I quite well, they're now saying, I basically like the idea of having a Labour president, but I'm really not sure about the Labour Party. 
and it'll be interesting. Now, obviously, the Labour leadership is going to try and change that calculation, right? So the hypothetical may never be tested. But it's interesting how at the moment the election would be a straight rerun of that dynamic, right down to the fact that, you know, the economy is terrible. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I think I, it's really interesting to look back on the Conservatives' fears before that 2015 election, thinking that they weren't really, they didn't have the edge over Ed Miliband, even though obviously it turned out that they did. And then after that election result, the conclusion, it was one of those moments where politicians and you know, political journalists sort of said, well, of course, it was so obvious, you know, if you're trailing on prime ministerial quality or whatever that that sort of measure is called leadership, and you're trailing on economic con- competence, then you're never going to win the election. So <laughs> I don't know what happens when the personal ratings of your leader are good. But still, the economy is in a terrible scenario. And your party is still trailing the government on economic com- competence from if we're looking at the lessons of the David Cameron 2015 election win, then yes, you wouldn't see Keir Starmer winning for the Labour Party despite its its poorer ratings compared to him. But then I don't know, you know, think things things could change and the economy, it's going to take some time for people to realise that things aren't necessarily going to go straight back to normal. And perhaps when they realise that, it will be the government that is seen as incompetent with the economy rather than the same old view of the Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I thought was interesting today was, yeah, this morning, Rishi Sunak saying, basically, look, if people don't go out to eat in restaurants, the economy is going to collapse. And I just thought, well, that's an ill-judged statement. Because if you are someone who's saving because you're concerned about your job, what you hear from that is you should continue to keep saving because you think you're going to need to, like, pay your bills to your savings. If you're someone who thinks we're unlocking too early because the government is trying to put the economic crisis over the health crisis, Mm. a government minister literally saying, yes, we are putting the health crisis behind. (laughs) I just just thought, I'm just intrigued as to how that kind of statement lands. I'm intrigued as to how, like, the fact that other bits of the government, you know, kind of keep briefing things like the country's addicted to the furlough. And I just think... I just feel I can semi-see how the cards fall in the right way. And I mean, I do think some of the tone towards the country this week has been a little bit too close, if I were, you know, in CCHQ and concerned about this kind of thing, a little bit too close to why won't these bozos accept and they need to take up, take the risks of their lives on the chin because otherwise the economy is going to collapse. Now, I know some of our listeners, including slightly to my surprise, given some of the previous political opinions they've expressed in emails to me, some of our listeners are very much in the kind of like, well, you've got to take the health risks on the chin because mm. there may not be a vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. But that's visibly not where the country is. And I just think it's a terrible message to be trying to land if you are the government because you are you know, kind of culpable for the health crisis. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that we already know that the, the public, okay, we know the polling is very pro lockdown, pro masks, pro all of these things from the public already from from the polling that's been done during this crisis. But we also know that the public is willing to put other things above their own financial circumstances. So we know that, you know, in some of the polls during the the times before we'd left the EU, people were willing to put their Brexit stance before their financial circumstances if it if it meant if it meant doing that so you can kind of see that the public will be willing to put their their health which is obviously far more of a universal issue than the divisive remain leave binary 
above their financial circumstances or indeed as it sounds the financial the, the financial circumstances of the businesses that the government wants us to go out and and stimulate or our own employers for example of course you're going to put your your own health above the economic prospects of 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 these institutions so i think we already know that the public isn't necessarily going to be persuaded by by that argument but also it is fair to say that the furlough scheme and other sort of measures are slightly disguising the sort of tidal wave of unemployment that's around the corner and people's priorities may then change. But back to Keir Starmer, I don't know whether or not there is a sort of gap in all of this for him to be able to to better the footing of the Labour Party. Yeah, the question I kind of sort of always have with, with both the furlough and with Keir is to what extent would Labour be in a better position if they were just arguing for a stronger safety net? Mm. I mean, obviously, with my wonkish hat on, I do think it would fix quite a lot of our problems. Not least, people wouldn't be saving excess. Okay, so some some people are just saving because they're they are just saving more because you know we have fewer running costs. But others are saving because they're worried about the economy. And the single thing you can do to fix that latter group is to have a welfare state, which basically says, "Don't worry, someone's going to cover your rent and all your mortgage." Yeah, but I guess it's one of those weird things where. And this is just, I guess, the weird thing about assessing both the 100 days and the position of politics. We we know that this big tidal wave, as you say, is going to hit. And we can kind of go like, oh, well, you both you both seem fairly well positioned at this point. But we don't know what's going to happen to politics other than we, I think, can safely say politics will be different. And that's why whatever really he decides to do is a bit of a gamble. Yeah. Because, you know, he could have played the he could have played the sort of public opinion which is so obviously in one direction and sort of criticised any attempts by the government to do anything to try and put economy above health, which probably would have me- meant he became more popular. But but like you, you often write, he kind of anticipates the next battleground before it comes. So perhaps he, you know, his calculation is that the next battleground is going to be unemployment and, and the economy. But obviously, he hasn't calculated that enough, or he doesn't feel sort of safe enough to be able to then make that obvious and, you know, sensible policy argument about the welfare state because of the historic unpopularity with talking about benefits generosity. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this is a question from Omar. Thanks for writing in. He asks, apart from never appointing Chris Grayling to anything ever again, is there anything number 10 should take away from this fiasco? The fiasco he refers to, if listeners aren't up to date, 
is that the Conservative MP Julian Lewis has been kicked out of the party after beating Chris Grayling, who was the government's favourite to become chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Stephen. Yeah, so, I mean, I think in many ways, right, it's just essentially kind of like the very familiar problem this Downing Street setup has, which is that it doesn't know the parliamentary party very well. It doesn't actually... Yeah, it's not actually even accurate to say that they're bad at parliamentary management. They just don't think they have to do it. Like it's it's you know like it's it's kind of it's like a more profound level of incompetence. Mm-hmm. Like because it's like someone crashing into a wall in their car and then being like, I don't need to know where the wall is. Getting back in the car and then just driving straight into the wall again. So because the reason why this happened basically is that Downing Street had a preferred candidate. The makeup of the select committee means that. There is a government majority on it because they've removed one of the the crossbencher from it. Mm. So there's a government majority. There are four opposition politicians from the SNP and Labour Party, again, because of the election result. Therefore, in order to get your preferred candidate, if you are Downing Street, you needed to successfully pick from a parliamentary party of, I'm going to get the exact number, just because I want to, I just want to highlight how easy (laughs) the task is, right, from a parliamentary party of drumroll 365 you have to find four four mps with a security background and i think like I-, I use that term to kind of again highlight how easy the task is right among conservative mps having a background that makes you a plausible ish candidate for this committee is kind of like if there was like a secret education committee but you had to do it with Labour MPs, like loads of them used to be teachers, loads of them have been educational psychologists or occupational therapists or whatever. Like, you know, like, it's not hard. Yeah, there are loads and loads of people who are like former soldiers, former security consultants, mm. yada, yada, yada. And you just needed four who were going to vote for Chris Grayling. Julian Lewis is, I mean, it's the kind of person who, when we were like waiting for a Brexit division to update and we like, couldn't get a list of rebels, and we knew we needed to update our spreadsheet or, you know, to work out why the government had lost. He was one of those names that you could just be like, well, okay, if there's 15 pro-Brexit rebels, Julian Lewis is death's one of them. <laughs> like, it, yeah, because it, it, essentially what he did is he basically worked out, well, I'm more qualified for this role than Chris Grayling. Opposition parties will want to, like, give Downing Street a bloody nose. Hmm. therefore I'll ask them to vote for me, my vote plus their, you know, four opposition plus one of the Tories is five. Boom, I, I'm chair of the uh, Intelligence and Security Select Committee. He's 68, so he's, you know, I mean, I'm not saying he definitely was planning to retire in 2024, but if he has to retire in 2024, you know, it's not going to be the worst thing ever to happen to him, and, he'll, and this is going to be his last big job in politics, whatever happens. And, like, the possibility that something like this could happen which is like the kind of thing that anyone who like spends any time looking at commons divisions which you know really ought that really ought to be something that exists within the competence of this Tory leadership but like they yeah they genuinely I think because we've had small parliamentary majorities for so yeah basically the last decade right mm-hmm. and when we had a big one under the coalition they had to negotiate everything by the quad then I just genuinely think what this reveals, and it's one of the things that I think is going to be really difficult for them over the course of this parliament until they, you know, either skill up or are shipped out by Conservative MPs, is they genuinely think the majority is like a, is sort of large or rebellion proof. And like, it's really not. 
It's smaller than the majority Harold Wilson had when he had to retreat over in place of tri- strife in 1966 to 70. It's smaller than Tony Blair's, well, so it's only 10 bigger than Tony Blair's majority in his final term. And yet they, they, they had to retreat on an awful lot of stuff. Like, it's just like, but it's like this thing where, like, they genuinely do believe that, like, the fact they can just go triggered liberals is, is, is like a whipping strategy. Now, I think at some point, yeah, there is now kind of, yeah, fairly heavy sort of steer that the current chief whip will be moved on. I'm not actually convinced that he is necessarily the problem himself, although I'm after a mistake, everyone is always claiming that someone else was actually the person whose hand was at the wheel. So I'm not going to adjudicate on which one of those people is is being accurate. But Mm. I think what, yeah, it really reveals is that the government is bad at parliamentary management. It's bad at keeping, like, uh, having a sense of who the irreconcilables in the parliamentary party is beyond their kind of like, I mean, I'd be willing to bet the reason why Julian Lewis could have ended up having his position on the select committee sort of reaffirmed in this process is because their heuristic is Tory remainers bad, Tory leavers good. And that's like basically as deep as their knowledge of the parliamentary party goes. That is going to be a big problem because I mean, I assume not, I mean, it's safe to say that there are going to be quite a lot of quite controversial votes. And if you can't marshal, a set of four from 365 MPs to vote for Chris Grayling, then this idea that you're going to, like, reform the state or disrupt, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Like, pull the other one. Like, yeah, like, let's just all admit the actual truth, which is that this Downing Street finds governing a tedious task, which it is not up to, between the, like, fun work of travelling around the country going, traders, 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 and then winning. Like, it's just like, you're like, it's fine. Like, you know, we're all good at different things. <laughs> like, it's kind of, it's sort of has the follow-up, follow-up question for, for me to you. And it's just like, what do you feel like the big, like, kind of policy issues that you would be most worried about if you were in Downing Street? And this has shown you probably don't have the wherewithal to pass legislation on. Yeah, I mean, I think we we can expect some of these down the line if they ever even bother to confront them, because like you said, it's almost like it's too tedious to do something beyond talking about it in the press. Like I think when I heard this Chris Grayling story, I just thought it's so interesting, isn't it, that Number 10's had this cock up and they've decided instead of kind of trying to work out what went wrong behind the scenes with their chief whip and the way that they associate with their MPs and the way they communicate with their backbenchers and the select committee chairs and all of this stuff that you've that you've been talking about, they decided actually the best thing to do is kick him out of the party. I don't really mm. see how that helps their interests. And I do think that it's from that 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 mindset of approaching everything in terms of how it will be covered in the press. So presumably they think that Julian Lewis, as a non-conservative MP, when he's quoted on the BBC about things that the committee does in future, won't hold as much weight as a, as a, as a Tory MP saying it, even though select committee chairs obviously comment on all sorts of things in an apolitical way. So I just see it as them thinking about it in such a shallow and superficial way, which is which is the way that they speak about the policies that they want to change. So just one example is, is social care. Boris Johnson's first speech as prime minister last year was that he had a clear plan for social care that he would announce. It didn't appear in the manifesto. As late as March this year, Matt Hancock was writing to MPs asking for that, for their ideas. That's one of the things that sort of the COVID-19 crisis has showed that they they probably do have to confront reforming. And I do think that if they start trying to do that beyond their sort of 
you know, weasel words and their suggestions that they have a plan that they clearly don't, that's going to get them into trouble because there's so many different opinions, even just within, even within just the right of the Tory party on how to fund social care, that they're going to run into trouble with that if they even bother to, to confront it. Um, so that's one of them. Obviously, the more obvious one is is whether or not to raise taxes. Obviously, they're going to have to do that if they want to do any... Even without the even without the pandemic, if they wanted to deliver the manifesto that, that they have, they probably would have bumped up against that policy not to raise VAT income tax or national insurance at some point. That's going to get run them into trouble with backbenchers who they otherwise probably, if they treated better or they'd taken on the journey with them, might not have had a problem with, or at least had not expressed, would not express a problem with in terms of, of House of Commons votes. So I think that's probably going to be another one. What do you think? Yeah, so, so in terms of like the the tax thing, which yeah, I mean like I mean obviously their debt target has been pushed <laughs> off course somewhat, but yeah, like they are are you know if they want to keep all of their promises, they are they are going to have they were going to have to sort of put their finger in that object, and it, it's become even more acute as a result of everything that's happened since then. But in terms of the bad treatment, I thought of like so I was um I was doing one of my um my trips into Westminster. And I've started like wearing particularly flamboyant suits, like as a kind of peacocking thing to get people to like, you know, to draw MPs towards me. Someone came up and was like, oh, that's a very nice pink suit. And I was oh, thank you. And we talked about my pink suit for a bit. And then they said, they were like, oh, you know, they were like, have you read this time story about, you know, wealth taxes? And they were like, you know, and they just said, you know, said, I think I'm going to rebel over that. And I just wanted to be obvious. I went, oh, interesting. But like, that sums up like why you should yeah. always, if you're the chief, avoid re- re- rebelling. Because this is someone who had basically been loyal to a variety of leaders, over a variety of things, who like basically sort of started rebelling fairly recently. Feels like they've like kind of been shut out through like for the sin of being loyal to every other Tory leader. And now they're just like, do you know what's really great fun? Rebelling. Like they actively <laughs> actively look at new policy areas being like, I think I'm gonna rebel on that too. Like <laughs> Yeah, and like the the tax stuff, I, I just think like this this idea that this parliamentary setup could successfully do an ambitious tax on wealth, I just think is 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 to use a phrase and you know, people on the internet keep bullying me for, I and mean, that's really cancel culture. Uh, is for the birds right it, it, but it is for the birds the idea that like then this government could get mps to do that and i have had so many conversations recently with people who've sort of proactively been like yeah this thing that isn't scheduled i'm going to rebel on that so much of the trick in a parliamentary democracy is yeah ultimately there are only about 150 jobs available for people hmm. realistically there are some people you're never going to give jobs to but you kind of need to at least give them the sense that you might you can't have a situation in which, like, I mean, like, with the Cummings thing, right, there are MPs in marginal seats who felt they had to speak out because of how angry people were. And I think they were probably correct to think that they did need to just have, like, something they can say. Because, right, there are still people who are still, like, it's one of those things where, like, surely people still aren't angry about that. And then someone's like, no, I'm actually really furious about it still. <laughs> like, there are marginal MPs who basically feel like they've been told that they have no future under Boris Johnson because they were left sort of cold to like deal with like the world's worst inbox on the issue Mm. who are basically now like well okay I'm in a marginal seat the current PM doesn't like me I'm probably not going to be in this in job in this job long enough to like outlast the current PM so I guess I might as well just vote however I want and then you have the other problem of like lots of young ambitious MPs like the 29 intake 
2019 intake is astonishingly rebellious. Like it's rebellious, even like, you know, even people who are like, you know, kind of like, I mean, obviously we all use Anthony Magnol as, as the like er example, right? This is like, you know, articulate guy, you know, like MP for Tottenham, been a spad, like this is someone who is just very much like the person who ought to be the model of an ultra loyal Tory. I can't even remember what the first thing he rebelled on was. But broadly, like there are loads of people in that kind of category, right? He's was he was the first, but he, he was by no means the last. Like, you know, kind of like it would be like the equivalent of if like Oliver Dowden in twenty fifteen had started rebelling against David Cameron. You'd be like, Wow, why are you so bad at this? Yeah, and I and also I do think that the sort of assumption is that, oh, because these new MPs are ideologically different from the government because they came in with the red wall seats and all of this stuff. Whereas actually, no. You know, Anthony Magnell is a really good example. He he should be someone who is, you know, an enthusiastic, young, loyal pup, you know, who's been elected and his views perfectly align with 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 the Conservative government. But, um, you know, you can't explain it away by the fact that you've got all these new MPs in these exciting new areas that the Conservatives have never before represented. And actually, probably they're forgetting about that side of of, of the party as well. Yeah, it's it's one of those weird things where like because even like I yeah, I think it's a really interesting to say that how partly because this is the first time in the decade that the Conservatives have had a decent majority. But it has kind of meant that sort of for the first time you have no one in the party going, How are we gonna win X? And instead it's become how are we gonna hold X? Mm. And like actually the average Conservative MP in a Red Bull seat is not like some kind of like, you know, major lefty like you know just as like you know the the Tories who replaced all those Lib Dems weren't particularly liberal but like I do think there is also this kind of structural problem that like they have kind of started to forget that I'm not necessarily obviously I don't think the economic policies they pursued in the first decade of power were great but like the sums do have to add up like there, there has to be a cohesive policy program and a cohesive policy program does involve upsetting people. And you have a situation where, like, the government kind of basically often seems to feel like it's successfully upset people if it's upset its own MPs or commentators. But, like, actually, the people it needs to upset if you, like, want to, like, rebalance the economy are the people who lose out from the rebalancing. Mm. And if you want to build homes, they're the people who lose out if you build more homes. And in practice, and this is, of course, the other reason why there are more rebellions, because there are more U-turns. Mm. And the second that you U-turn once, people start to go like, oh, but if I vote for this unpopular thing and then like Keir Starmer lashes the PM and then it gets sort of U-turned on, why would I bother? Now, that can sometimes work the other way. The only reason why the government have managed to pass the, you know, the, the changes to the vote, to, you know, to how the Commons voted into law was a large number of Tory MPs thought this is such a stupid system then I am not going to even bother annoying the whips by voting against it because it will have been unpicked in a week and they are right it was unpicked in a week Mm. but equally there are people who rebelled for the first time in that vote who who are you know now loving their new life on the wild side and that is Mm. really the story of the Chris Grayling stuff is just like if you don't care about parliament parliament will find a way to care about you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.